0: Is he worthy? He is. Amen and amen. We look forward to singing that song. Thank you, young people, for introducing it to us It's a church family, and the Lord used you, and thank you for that. We'll be singing that for the rest of this month and looking forward to that. Well, please take your Bibles with me this morning as we turn together in God's Word. We're turning to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew, chapter 18. We're looking in the Word of God this morning at verses 10 through 14, Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. And we're looking at what God's Word has to say concerning life among His disciples, among Jesus' disciples, life in the church in one sense. And the title of today's message is Caring for God's Little Ones. Caring for God's Little Ones, Matthew 18, verses 10 14. Let's look there together. The Word of God reads, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their, angel all, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray... Does he not leave the ninety and nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Well, this is the word of God. Again, the title of today's message is Caring for God's Little Ones. Let's remind ourselves, as it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Matthew chapter 18, we left off last week together looking at Psalm 100 and looking into a different text and a portion of Scripture. We are now back in our study of Matthew chapter 18. The context here is greatness in the kingdom. Remember, we began at the beginning of Matthew 18. The disciples there in verse 1 were asking questions among themselves Jesus brings it out of them and we see this little one language introduced to us that Jesus brings into play. Last time together in verse 7 we saw Jesus's warning concerning being those who are tripping up the little ones of God you could say. We saw the danger of trip sticks or the setting of traps Asking the question, what if one of the children of God stumble? The question is, is should we look down upon them as many do? The answer is no. Jesus says here in our text, our context expressly, do not look down on the little ones. Now, introducing the whole idea is Jesus uses the metaphor of a child. There's evidently a child standing by. Verses 1 through 5, we saw that he brings one who is a believing one, trusting in him, resting in him. And he begins to redefine terms and definitions for the disciples. And he brings into play this idea of the little ones and how God's disciples or Jesus' disciples are the little ones of God. And how should we view them? Well, we should love them. We should not look down upon them. We should esteem them. That is to say, esteem the body of Christ. To esteem and to love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Many metaphors for the church in Scripture, but maybe our favorite is the family of God. The family of God. Everyone is our brother and our sister. And so we are to love each other in that relational way as God is our Father. Well, as we look into the text today, I want us to see, As we'll notice the headings as we come to them. But number one, the rule. In verse 10, we see the rule that Jesus gives. Notice there with me. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Well, this is the theme. I've already used the phrase little ones probably ten times in the message already. Why are we emphasizing this? Well, just in verse 3 and 4, notice there with me, Jesus is the one who defines and introduces to us, become as little children, verse 4 Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child. We mentioned he brings into a visible metaphor this example of a child. In verse 5, he switches from the physical illustration now to the spiritual by referring to all of the children of God as little children. Verse 5, whoever receives one little child like this in my name, you're receiving me. We saw Jesus identifies himself with his people. With his church. Here Christ is teaching to those who've been converted. The audience is his disciples. And they are those who've been born again spiritually. And they need to understand, they need to realize, and they need to really, in one sense, relearn everything. They sit at the feet of Jesus. They need to be informed that their view of the world is not like everyone else's view of the world. The world's way is to work your way up the ladder at the expense of many, many things. The world's way is ambition and self-glory. Here Jesus is saying, you need to rethink things because in the kingdom it is not that way. In fact, those who are great in the kingdom are those who humble themselves. They are those who take a lowly position of a learner at the feet of Jesus to learn the truth from Jesus. Church, let me just remind you, we are those who are constantly being transformed in our thinking. There's a natural way of thinking. There's a natural way of the flesh. There is a way that seems right unto man, but the end of that path, the end of that way is death. We, I've already mentioned in previous messages, we, 1 Corinthians describes for us the view of the world as the great, the famous, the noble the mighty the wealthy the rich this is what we should pursue and aspire after but jesus says listen the world's value system is different from the lord's value system paul describes this ably we will not turn to 1 corinthians but we are the offscouring of the world in a sense the world looks down upon us here's why because our value system is different our lord and master is different. Our Lord and Master is not position, power, money, or wealth. Our value system is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to serve His will, to expand His kingdom, to serve His bride, to serve His church for the greater glory of God. And it's disciples of Jesus who live faithful callings in the corners where God has placed us in our schools, in our jobs, in our workplaces, we rub shoulders with those who think differently than we do every day. Now, do not hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying there's a problem in that in a sense. We have to work and provide for our families. Uh, We have to shop in the public squares and the marketplaces. We have to engage with our neighbors and get to, we would even say, engage with those that God has providentially brought into our spheres. But do not make a mistake about it. We don't think as the world thinks, or do we? Or do we? See, we need our thinking to be transformed. As disciples of Jesus here this morning, we as well, we too, are sitting at the feet of Jesus. And here's the takeaway we want to have through this study is we want to see the church as Jesus sees the church. We want to value what he values. We want to love what he loves. And in order to love what he loves, we must hate what he hates. Notice, number one, the rule here in verse 10. Jesus speaks a word of warning to his disciples. What is that warning? Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. Take heed. That means to be on guard. In other words, your natural default position is going to be one at ease. One that's not taking heed. One that is flippant at times. One that is insensitive. One that is not on guard. And the language that Jesus is giving to his disciples is one of intense prohibition, one commentator says. Strong warning to his disciples against what? Against disdain. Against despising. Against belittling. Against compounding hurt. Against sinning against another one of God's children. And how do we do that? Well there's many ways that we do that. The most common warning in the New Testament is one of preference. Preference. What do you mean by that? Time and time again, both Paul and James just to give some examples, if you'll be taking your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2 verse 1. Most commonly the warning against despising a little one of God, a child of God, a fellow disciple of Jesus is called preference. Viewing people as how they can help you, or because of position, because of power, because of any number of things, we look at some believers as more valuable than other believers. This is a natural warning of the flesh, this is a natural temptation of the flesh. We could simply say, How many Christians or children of God are injured, to use the language of the text, tripped? How many of gone astray because they were treated in an inferior way in the church. This is not an exhortation or a pampering to those who are easily offended to to continue in that offense without forgiveness. Not at all. We'll see more about that in in just a moment. But it is to recognize that oftentimes in the church, we can naturally gravitate to people who we may have commonality with. It it could be any number of things. But the bottom line is, is to intentionally Listen, in this fallen world, we're always going to, there's going to be elements of unintentionally offending someone. That's not what's in play here. What's in play here is setting a trap. Being partial to, this is one of the continual warnings of the New Testament, a church who maybe caters to the influential, those who have a position in the community, those who have means. And continuing to only minister to those or have a value system in ministry to where the, the needs of the ministry are those who we talk to, to the neglect of other little ones who are here in the people of God. We've not spoken to Mr. So-and-so or Sister So-and-so or Little One So-and-so. or You get the idea. Because what, Why would we do that? Well, because we love them. They're one for who Christ died. And so we can give preference to one another. James warns the church against this. James 2 verse 1, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Notice this phrase, with partiality. Well, James is addressing this one application of preference. How is that? For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, Here, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand there or you sit here at my footstool. You can serve me in a sense. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brother. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, notice, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Making a connection to what James is telling us here, James 2. The rule, the prohibition that Jesus is, is take heed that you don't do that. Take heed that you do not despise one of my children. Well, how is this expressed? How do we need to guard our hearts? One way that we need to do that is in preference. Church family, just let me ask you a question. As your pastor, when you come into the assembly, who do you naturally gravitate towards? Are there people that you bypass? Are there people that you intentionally do not talk to? I think maybe that's the best way to phrase it. We all, bat, when I walked in here this morning, I bypassed all of you <laughs> to, to pick on the pastor here this morning because it's time for church. So don't overanalyze it to the point of sterilization. What we're talking about is: is are there people that you intentionally stay away from because you look down upon them? Are there people among the body that you do not have a love for Christ, and your actions express it? In such a way? Are there people in this congregation that you don't talk to because it's difficult uh, to talk to them? Are there people that uh, you, you don't talk to because you don't have anything in common with them? Well, I'll correct that. You do. You have much in common with them. And it may not be in the way of hobbies and habits, but it is in the way of Jesus and Christ. The first century audience that James was warning against had both master, slave owner, and slave in the assembly. Both the poor and the rich. But when you come in to the corporate gathering of God's church, all men are equal. Maybe not out there. Maybe not according to the value system of this world's sphere. But in the church of God, in the body of God, we are one in Christ. Do our actions and as does our ministry and does our words show this? The modern church has this all wrong. Simply look at the ministries of a modern church, any church. You take it, take this church. We will not exempt ourselves from examination. Disgraced church have a tendency to pursue after those of wealth, means, and influence. Is it a sin to have particular actions? avenues of ministry like a a businessman's luncheon to say we want to strengthen the business community no that's a great idea it's not a bad idea at all but do we also minister to the poor do we have bible studies in the jail do we have a concern about our jerusalem where we live and those who are under bondage and in sin those whose lives are messy and to have ministry in these spheres it's going to take work and time and prayer and investment These are all good questions for us to ask. Well, preference. So much more, we could could spend the rest of the sermon on just talking about preference. Do we have preferences? And I'll just say this in closing application on this one point. is Church, let me just give you a word of guidance, shepherding. When it comes to the assembly, do not allow yourself to avoid anyone. Do not allow yourself to intentionally go to the other side of the room to avoid speaking to a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ allow yourself to love and ask the lord to give you a heart that loves the body as he loves the body you cannot you cannot minister to those that you look down upon you cannot have influence to those that you you have a condescending spirit and attitude towards it's impossible May the Lord, by His Spirit, speak to all of us regarding this. Well, the rule, the prohibition. What's another way that we see this in the life of the church. It could be self focused. Verse 1 of Matthew 18. This is certainly in view here within the context. Self focused. The disciples there are asking, Well, then who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And they're not looking among themselves like, Andrew, I think you're you're just fine. I look up to you, Andrew. Peter, I admire you. You are a leader among men. No, they're not talking about others, they're talking about themselves. It's a self focus, it's a me first mindset. It's a a me first syndrome. Who of us is the greatest in the kingdom? This is fueled by self-focus and self-serving. This is fueled by pride and ambition. And oftentimes when people don't stroke our feathers and and, and continue to affirm this self-focus and this pride and this ambition in the life of the church, the offense grows even greater. This is a temptation for every single one of God's children. Philippians chapter 2 says this, Paul writing says, listen church, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others as better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Inside all of us, there's a natural temptation to stand upon other people to advance, in the fallen flesh of man, fallen men and their schemes, in the, in the fallen worldview, in the secular worldview, fallen men make themselves great not by serving others, but by standing upon others. For them to make themselves big, they must make others small. This can be done through a variety of ways. It can be through the use of verbal sarcasm overtly. It can be through the use of putting down verbally jabs, it could be through actions, decisions. but the intent is is I must make myself great. And so in other, to, in other words, to make myself great, and in order to do that, I must put threats down. so they build upon the negatives of others. They highlight and talk about and focus on their positives. In the life of the church here, in this text, Jesus gets, In our face, he's looking at his disciples and he says this. This is not the way of Christ. This is not the way of true discipleship. This is not my way. To answer your question, disciples, this is not the way to greatness. In fact, the way to greatness is not to make other little ones look small. The way to greatness is to love them as Christ loves them. The way to greatness is to serve them as Christ serves them. The way to greatness is to be the hands and the feet of Christ and to lay down your life as He's laid down His life for His bride. Turn with me, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, this is a passage our young people are memorizing and in two weeks we look forward to reciting Romans 12 to you, church family. Paul speaks to this in a very... Direct way. When it comes to our love, let's not be stingy. When it comes to our love, let's love without partiality. Let's love freely. And may our theology and our love and our affection have shoes. In other words, tangible action. Everyday realities. Romans 12, 9. Let love, let your love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, Paul says. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Notice the familial language Paul brings into play here. We are the body of Christ appointed to just a second ago. When I see you, I don't see you as just a guy, another man, someone who's out there. When I see you sisters, I don't just see you as a, a, a young woman or an older woman or a peer You're all my sister, sisters, and you're all my brothers and I, you and us to each other and all of us together. This is the language. Be kindly, Paul says, affectionate to one another with brotherly love. So when I see you in all the ways that I see you, I cannot not see you as a brother. If I find you annoying, that's okay. We have to work through that. But we have to find each other we have to see each other as the annoying brother. And don't act like you don't have an annoying brother. Some of you do. You're laughing. You're nodding your head. But what keeps the reality of the bond there together is that you're related by flesh and blood. For some of you, you have a wonderful sister. She's your sister. It's easy easy to love her. There's people that are easy to love. and There's people that are not so easy to love. But the bottom line is, is the command of Christ is to love. They shall know you, John says. They will know you by your, not strife, your love. Well, that's what Paul's saying. He brings in be kindly, affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In, and, and what does that look like? Well, okay, well, like this. In honor, giving preference to one another. We should literally be tripping over ourselves to put each other first. This is the basics of decorum, church. Even people that have strong moral foundations and good parenting do this. You first, or let me hold that door for you. This is not even, this is just like the bare minimum of what it is to, to express tangible evidences of love. Even people just who've got good manners do this. But yet we find ourselves struggling to do this sometimes in the life of the church. In honor, giving preference to one another. You first. I love you. Not lagging and diligent. So, okay, hold on a second. We're here in Romans 12, Verses 10 and 11, how do we be kindly affectionate to one another? Well, with brotherly love, not in honor, giving preference to one another, but also not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit. Last week, if you were here, we gave great attention talking about Jesus not only has concern with what we do, but with how we do it. You can give a cup of cold water to someone, and it'd be very clearly communicated that you are annoyed. You can do a good thing. In a bad way. And yet so many times we're content with a good thing, but the, not concerned with the bad way. Notice what Paul says, with fervent spirit, fervent in spirit, zealous, affectionate, this is important, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. This is just a side application. I, I want to spend the rest of the sermon on each one of these. The time does not allow us. Let me just say this. Notice that phrase, given to hospitality. Church, I want to say this, going back to the connection of not only the what, but the how. The spirit of hospitality is not just in the action, but it's a heart and a look and an action that says welcome. Hospitality is not just limited to or rendered to come over and eat, or let's meet it for a meal. Or here's a bed for you to sleep in. It's a spirit of life. It's one that says, there you are, my brother in Christ. There you are, sister. I love you because of Jesus. And what he's done in my life and what he's done in your life. You're my brother. You're my sister. We are given to these things. Fervent in spirit. Fervent. Steadfast. Philippians 2, verse 1, last verse we'll look at on this point. Philippians 2, verse 1, Paul says this, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, Paul says, Fulfill my joy as your pastor. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only out for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. We're back to the person and work of Christ, who back here in Matthew chapter 18 is teaching us this. The mind of Christ, the command of Christ. Here in Matthew 18, we have the instruction and the teaching of Christ. His directive, take heed, beware. Philippians 2, we see the heart of Christ is the fuel behind all of it. Well, So number one, the rule that Jesus gives. Verse 10, take heed, back in Matthew chapter 18, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now, here in our text, Jesus doesn't just give the command, but he answers the question, why should we do this? Well, number one, the easiest answer to that is because he says so. But here in our text, Jesus gives two additional reasons. The first is, in verse 10, the work of angels. This is sudden. It's slightly out of nowhere. It's odd in a sense that we don't talk about angels and just off the roll of the tongue. And of course, be on guard because, you know, the angels. That's not something that is natural or normal in our rhythms of talking, but here in Jesus' teaching, he gives a reason why we should be on guard is not only because he says so, but notice in verse 10 he invokes the work of angels. He says there, "For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven." There's a warning here in this text. And Jesus gives this warning, connecting to the children of God and His angels. What is He saying? Well, let's start with this, what he's not saying. And I'm about to offend some of you here this morning. What Jesus is not saying and affirming is that every one of us have a plurality of angels who attend to our every need and care. We call them guardian angels, if you will. Does he send angels within the will and providence of God? Does he send angels to minister to his servants? No doubt. His word clearly, his word clearly says that. What is Jesus saying? Here, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So just a sub-thought here, as we think about the work of angels, and we're not going to unpack here the doctrine of angelology this morning, the category of angels. Our men have been studying that recently, and so they will have a greater level of freshness and insight into that because of our study in the men's Bible study together. One thing scripture is clear about as Jesus brings it to play, because "...their angels behold the face of my Father who is in heaven." Their angels, I'm telling you, do not do this. Be on guard, because their angels behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. Those of you who are basketball enthusiasts, think of it like this. Or even football. They have it. This is zone coverage as opposed to man-to-man. Here Jesus brings into play the plurality of angels. Something that is clear in Scripture is that angels have assignments and they have deployments. The angels of God surround His throne... And they look directly in his face continuously. Isaiah chapter 6. In the heavenly vision that Isaiah has, he sees the seraphim covering their face. In one sense, those that are closest to the throne, those are worshiping him. There's another sense to where the plurality of angels who are at God's disposal are looking with an eye of obedience. Like children looking to their father for his next directive command here's another way again forgive me for using my coach speak I am a coach and I've spent many years coaching so some of these analogies come off the bat as coaches we'll say this listen with your eyes today's young people struggle to do this all young people have I did I say that I said today's young people it's always been a struggle yeah we're listening but we're half listening and we're just kind of looking around and the coach is trying to call the play and he's giving a directive and he needs to know do you get this Listen with your eyes, don't just listen with your ears. And when you listen with your eyes, you're locked in, and you're communicating, your command is my wish, and I will obey. The angels are are like that. They serve God, they worship God, and they look steadfastly at the face of God, as if to say, tell us how we can serve you, O sovereign ruler of the universe. That's what Jesus is saying. Their angels always see the face of my Father in heaven. You don't believe in angels, do you? Yeah, sure. Jesus did. I'm with Jesus. Angels are his servants. They do his will. They carry out his providence. They have assignments and deployments. Daniel chapter 10, verse 11 makes clear that God sent his angel to give the message, Daniel 10, 11 through 13. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And while he was speaking this word to me, Daniel says, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard. When you begin to pray and see God's face, the Lord heard your prayer, Daniel. He says, and I have come to you with words, but... The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Like, what? This is, like, what what are we talking about here? This is the unseen realm. This is the spirit realm. This is an example of an angel revealing to Daniel that, Daniel, you've been praying, and God has sent me to carry out his will and his divine will, and I've been struggling with the spirit-demonic beings Who would not just let me waltz around. There's a struggle. Not a struggle between our sovereign God and demons, but between angels and other fallen angels. Daniel 12 verse 1, At that time Michael shall stand up and the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, every one who was found written in the book. One thing the Bible is clear on is that God gives angels assignments, and sometimes God gives angels charge over nations and peoples and families and individuals. The idea is is that angels do the bidding will of God. They perform their assignments, and they return back to God, seeking His face, reporting, accounting, and looking for another assignment. So much there that we could look at and unpack. Another thing the Bible teaches us about angels is that angels are deployed for the service of man. For the service of believers, Psalm ninety-one, eleven. Satan used this in the tempting and testing of Jesus. Psalm 91, 11, For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. The Bible is clear that angels have power over life and death at the discretion of the sovereign will of God. Luke chapter 16, verse 22. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, the rich man was also buried. Notice there, Luke sixteen twenty-two, and he was carried by the angels. The Bible is clear that precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his children, his saints. And so we put these passages together, and one of the works of angels is to escort them to glory. Well, many more things we could say. Hebrews 1, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? The idea is if there's a need for a ministering angel, God will send that angel. Hebrews tells us that some of us have ministered to angels unaware. So, much more we could say there. But here Jesus wants his disciples to know, love the little ones, the children of God, the body of Christ, for there are angels warning here. You mistreat them. There's a sense of warning. Their angels, behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. Listen. On a minimum level, someone has to be dispatched to put the millstone around the offender's neck. Remember, Jesus has already told us better it is to, uh, to never have been born than to harm one of these little ones. It would be better for them if a millstone was placed around their neck and they were cast to the depths of the sea and they perished, they drowned. Who do you think carries out those orders? Well, here Jesus says his angels do. The work of angels. Now, in verse 11, we have a phrase, some of you, as we read the Scriptures this morning, that speaks to the salvific work of God. Why should we be on guard against, respecting, honoring, and loving the fellow church of God, brothers, the little ones? Well, this is the work and focus of God. Verse 11, in some translations, say this, For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives. Uh, Excuse me, verse 11 says, uh, that's the wrong reference there. Uh, Verse 11 says, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Quick reference on this, if you're using, the, I believe, the ESV or the New American Standard, that verse is not in your translation. In the New King James, which I'm using here, there's a footnote that's there that makes clear that in the original manuscripts, verse 11 is, is not present there. So let me comfort you if you're wondering, well, what are you reading? That verse is not in my Bible. It's footnoted. It's marked that in the earliest of manuscripts, that phrase is not present. But that is not to say this is not the work of Christ. Scripture makes clear that it is. So why is it there? Well, everything I've, I've read, a scribe inputs it there. It's the tone of the text. They've known it. They've footnoted it. The scriptures that we have and the manuscripts that we have them. The Bible is the most uh, validated book on planet Earth as far as original manuscripts. But to give an example of another passage where it's used, while that's not a misuse, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. When we look at the whole of our passage here, even though we take note and are transparent about the fact that that particular line is not in the original manuscripts of Matthew, we will not ignore it in the sense of it is in keeping with the text of what Jesus is saying. That leads us from the rule to, secondly, the resolve Notice with me verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? Now do you see the? why wow, that's not a stretch? The context there. We recognize and acknowledge what is in the originals and what is not. But very clearly Jesus says if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Here, Jesus is teaching, and he brings into play a parable. He uses a parable to nail home his point. He uses the parable of a sheep and a shepherd. A shepherd and his flock. In fact, experts say that the average size of a flock would be about 100 sheep for a shepherd. Here the Bible teaches us that, uh, imagine a scenario. Jesus is saying a shepherd has on average a flock of 100 sheep. This is the kind of standard rule of thumb for the day. And yet one goes astray. One leaves What is the response of the church? What is the response of the shepherd? Well, one thing we know that sheep do, it's very clear according to the record of Scripture, is they stray, they scatter, and they are slain. They stray, they scatter, they are slain. Isaiah 54, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaac Watts summarizes it like this, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. Straying and sheep are synonymous. Here's another way of saying it. Sheep need a shepherd. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 5 touches on this as well, on the aspects of sheep scattering, they're slain, they stray. Ezekiel says this, Ezekiel 34, verse 5, so they are scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and no one, notice, here, and no one was seeking or searching for them. Out of all these aspects of what sheep do, straying is what Jesus is pointing to here. It's the emphasis of our text. And in fact, in just verse 13 alone, the straying aspect of a sheep occurs three times. Look there with me in the text. Let me encourage you. In verse 13, one of them goes astray. Then the phrase, to seek the one that is straying. And then he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. So there's a question here. Jesus is asking his disciples, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains and seek the one that is straying? It's a rhetorical question. But yet, if you're a hireling... A hireling says, why would, I, why would I go after one when I have 99? To go after one sheep, to go up into the hills in the caves of Palestine, means uh, to be exerted, exertion, effort, injury. There's no telling where the lost sheep is. So the hireling would consider the question and say, yeah, I don't think so. Uh, you cut your losses. We all have losses. Mark it up as a, as a loss. That's the answer of a hireling. The true shepherd says, absolutely, always. Now, the true shepherd is not me or you. It's Jesus. Jesus is asking this question, saying, you know me. You know my heart. And if one of my sheep goes astray, does the true shepherd not go and seek and find the one that is lost? And the answer is yes. Now, to be clear, the context here is not talking about the lost man, it's talking about the believer. Here Jesus is talking to his disciples. The context here is the church. Jesus has already told us, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The disciples are arguing who is the greatest in the, in the kingdom of heaven among the body, among the disciples, among the family. So as great as it is, those of us who are once lost in a sense, that, that's not what is in view here. This is those who have believed and yet for whatever reason they have strayed. They are hurt they are driven just the true shepherd care. Well lastly we see the rejoicing in verse 13. Notice what Jesus says. He says, and if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones that they should perish. This passage is important, because as we continue to look at what comes next, Jesus is answering the why question. Jesus is helping us to know this is why the church does what it does. So We are the body, the sheep, the family of God. This emphasis in verse 13 is on rejoicing. This is an emotional response to one who has strayed. Why did they stray? Well, that reason why could be just as varied as the people that are here today. The the point of the text is not the why they strayed at this point now. It's on the the moment of rejoicing. The true shepherd seeks after what is his own. He will not lose one that's been entrusted to him. And it's also not the point that the, the point is not that the 99 that did not stray have no value. It's that the one who strayed was not lost. They had value, and that he sought after them. In fact, you could say it like this, it's that the one who strayed did not lose its value by straying. I'm going to ask you a question. Do you have that perspective? I'm going to say that again. The point that Jesus here is saying is not that the 99 who did not leave have no value because he's rejoicing over the one that strayed. What he's showing is that the one who strayed did not lose their value in his sight because he's seeking after them. This is not to comfort believers in their petty sin or in their serious sin or woes or hurt. It's not to minimize griefs, hurts, or any of those things at all. The focus here is on the keeping work of the shepherd and the response of the shepherd. And by the way, if the response of the shepherd in verse 13 is that he rejoices, the response of the other 99 who never left should be rejoicing as well, church. Our heart loves what he loves. Our hearts despise what he despises. He despises sin. And when we see that sin and those very things he warns us again at play in our lives, we are grieved. We repent and we weed it out and we deal with it. We love what he loves. And when our father rejoices after the valuable sheep that strays, here's our question, do we respond with joy as well? That's a a really important question for us to ask. Here Jesus is addressing the disciples' tendency to look down upon the straying sheep. That's a real tendency. A sheep that has been hurt or a sheep that's been offended, a a sheep that injustice has been done against it, they've been violated in some way, and so they are gone. The shepherd seeks after his. He will not lose one that is his. And he rejoices when the sheep is reclaimed. The tendency, though, of the 99 is to say, we never left. We we haven't struggled. We've always been at the Father's table. We've always been working in the Father's field. And all of it is the sovereign grace of God. All of it is the sovereign goodness of God. That is to say, friends, we have no thing that we can boast in nothing to boast in we don't boast or glory in our sin that leads us to stray and we don't boast in the grace that's kept us at the table that's allowed us to never leave in the first place biblical christianity is this all is of his grace biblical christianity is this all glory be to christ this is the attitude that jesus is addressing the hearts of his disciples He says, we rejoice when the lost, strayed sheep is is reclaimed and found. Don't we? Well, the answer to that is, no, we don't. That's why Jesus is addressing it. But turn with me to Luke chapter 15. There's always the self-righteous. And the grace of God and self-righteousness don't mix. Now, let's define our terms. Let's make sure we understand what we're talking about. Not righteousness in general, like the righteousness of Christ, which is the only righteousness, truly, self-righteousness. The look at what I do and what I do earns me merit and favor with God. And that leads to filling up of self and pride, condescension, all of those things. Well, in Luke chapter 15, we have three parables. I'm sure you're familiar with them if you've grown up in the life of the church and Heard sound teaching and teaching that is varied, and there's no doubt you've heard the parables, but the theme is those things which are lost. Luke 15 begins with the parable of the lost sheep, yet another illustration of this metaphor that Jesus loves to use. 15 verses 1 through 7. Verses 8 through 10, the parable then is one of a lost coin that is then found. And Luke 11 through 32, it's the parable of the prodigal son. And the emphasis is put on the fact that the prodigal son treats the father with disdain and disrespect, indignity, it just completely tramples the grace and the affection and the provision of the father with, with no thankfulness or gratitude and he abandons the father. You know the story. He reaches an absolute breaking point and it dawns on him all the idols that he has pursued, none of them satisfied. All the things that he disrespected the father for have not delivered all of his friends that he thought were friends they're not friends you can't get any lower than this jewish boy is in the pigsty eating the slop with the pigs and then it dawns on him there is someone who loves me there's someone and that's my father and maybe my father is so loving that he will have me come back you know the story he rehearses it to himself, and he comes home, and before he can even get to the door, the father runs to meet him. He doesn't even get to the door. He can't even rehearse his speech that he's already memorized and practiced. The father just hugs him, loves him, celebrates, reclaims him, restores him. But there is someone else who is not celebrating. Luke 15, verse 25. Notice there with me in the text. It says, now the older son was in the field, and as he came and he drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Wait a second, this is a brother, don't miss this, who's been faithful. Wait a second, LeGrand. I thought a faithful man, who can find? Oh, absolutely. This is a brother who's been at it. This is a brother who's never left. But the reason the brother never left is just as dishonoring to the Father as the actions of the Son who left. That that, that is to say, you can be doing the right thing, be working in the Father's vineyard and in His field, be sitting at the table, and yet not love the giver of every good and perfect gift. It is to say that you could prostitute and use the things of God for your gain and your fulfillment, and yet have no love, worship, and reverence for the God who provides all of it for you. That is to say, you may not be in the far country, but your heart is. It is to say that you could be right here, right there, in the vineyard, working for the Father, faking it, your affection your love for the Father, but your heart may not have gone with the younger brother, but man, you rehearse and rehearse and rehearse, and you sure wish maybe you had. Bottom line... The response of this older brother is not rejoicing. Luke 15, 25 there, it says he hears this music and this rejoicing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received, uh, because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. Their celebration. But what was his response? But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and he pleaded with him. You'll have to read. The rest of your story. There was one at that party who was not joyful, who was not celebrating. What Jesus makes clear is, is that it is the Father's delight to seek after the sheep that have strayed for whatever reason that they have strayed. And he will not lose one of them. And it is his will, it is an expression of the Father's will, verse 14, that not one of these little ones will perish back in Matthew 18, verse 14. Friends, I just want us to know that Jesus is the best shepherd. The Holy Spirit of God is the hound of heaven. And if you're his and you have strayed or you know someone who's strayed and you're burdened about them and you're concerned about them, know this, Jesus will not lose one of his little ones. And one of the ways that Jesus reclaims one of his little ones is he uses us to reclaim them. And Jesus' instruction here is don't despise them, but love them and celebrate with me that I have found my sheep. And they are back in the fold. Turn with me to one more passage here. Turn with me to John chapter 6, verse 37. John chapter 6 and verse 37. And let's bring this together with Jesus, who is the great shepherd of the sheep. And those sheep of the great shepherd who do stray Will they always be in the far country? Jesus delights to reconcile them, to reclaim them, to bring them home. Behold the preserving grace of our God. And may our hearts rejoice at this preserving grace that he extends. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Seen that? Think buzz language, Matthew 18. He bid one of these little ones to come to him. They came. And he says, The kingdom of heaven is like one of those who comes and trusts and rests and obeys the Father. Here, Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that he has given me I should lose nothing, but I should raise it up to the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son believes in Him that they may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. Hear that word of confidence that Jesus says there in verse 39 of all that He's given to me, I should lose nothing. If we were to go to the Middle East or land of Israel, Palestine, and different places where there's shepherds and hillsides, we would see some world class shepherds this morning. We would hear them talk about their craft, and we would be amazed at their skill set. Uh, it would be a visual demonstration and lesson, and would be helpful. I just want to remind all of us that there, there's no better shepherd than Jesus. One other passage: turn, turn with Yardi and John. Turn to John 10. John 10, just two, two, three pages over. Jesus is the best shepherd. He is the true shepherd. He is the chief shepherd. John 10, verse 1, Jesus says this, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. He goes on to describe for them, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, we mentioned earlier, but a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolves coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. As my Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I will lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd." Behold the joy and the duty that is ours, church family. It is the delight of the Son to shepherd the sheep. He gives His life for the sheep. He desires and loves to reclaim the straying sheep. So, closing application. What what is our role? Well, number one, our role is to love the sheep. To not set traps, trip sticks for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So many more applications we could give to this. Flaunting our liberties before the weak brother or sister. Preference, self-focus. We could have a a month-long Bible every Sunday. Just take one. What is a trip stick, if you will, in the life of the church? You get it. We have a mature congregation. May the Holy Spirit apply those trip sticks, tendencies that we may have. But may we be found loving what Jesus loves. May we receive and embrace the joyful task that when a brother or sister of this flock strays, that we participate in the reclaiming of them. And may the spirit of Grace Church always be that when a brother or sister who's fallen off the tracks, they just disappear, they won't come back. Of course, the elders will be doing their work, but the elders are not the only ones who do that work. Here, Jesus is talking to the earliest version of the church, in a sense, the disciples. It is the glorious work of the church, the brothers and the sisters of the body, to reclaim, to seek after, to rejoice when the straying sheep returns. And and when they return, when they walk in the doors of this church, there are some, it's been a while since they've been here. What is the spirit of response, the spirit of hospitality, of our church when they walk in those doors is it rejoicing or is it condescension well I'm going to close with this application this final thing that will keep us right in the hopefully by his grace in the right sphere those who you pray for when you pray for the body of Christ and when you pray through the listings of those in our church there's something beautiful and wonderful and mysterious that begins to happen is the love of God is infused into your heart for those that you pray for. Those that you fast and pray for and those that you have a heart for, the Lord gives you a version, an ability to be able to see them as he sees them, and an ability to interact with them as he interacts with them. And your response will be what his response is. Well, may the Lord help us. May the Lord drive this home to our hearts. May the Lord strengthen and edify his church by his word this morning. Our Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. It's convicting on every front. And Father, we desire that you show us our sin, that you give us a heart that mirrors your own heart, a heart, Lord, that rejoices in all of your grace, your preserving grace that keeps us on the straight and narrow, and your grace that is gloriously displayed to the straying sheep who's been cast aside. Father, we are those who rejoice when you rejoice. We are those who weep when you weep. We are those who love what you love. We are those who hate what you hate. This is a version, description of biblical revival. When your spirit comes down, your church is reclaimed and rekindled in all these affections and obedience and in your truth. We pray that you would apply it and help us here. in Christ's name we pray. Amen.